This is on point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. So here's a metaphor for you. You're a Cold War-era spy. You infiltrate the enemy's inner sanctum, pull out your tiny camera, and photograph top-secret documents, which you then quietly deliver that tiny roll of microfilm to your handler or mail a microdot full of secrets home in a letter. Few eyes ever see those images, and the microfilm eventually disappears into the archives. Sounds familiar, right? Straight out of the movies. But today, in reality, the whole world is interconnected online. If someone, say a young, low-ranking Pentagon employee, puts top-secret documents on the Internet, it's as if that tiny roll of microfilm gets instantly projected around the world. Now, cyber conflict will be central to all warfighting from now on. For example, in just the first few months of Russia's invasion, Ukraine absorbed or fended off more than 50 cyber attacks and launched many of its own. Back in the United States, the Pentagon is full speed ahead, developing cyber offenses and defenses. But of course, the Pentagon's data defenses were recently shown to have disturbing vulnerabilities. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira was arrested this month in connection with one of the worst leaks to come out of the Pentagon in recent memory. The Massachusetts U.S. Air National Guardsman was essentially a low-ranking IT worker, but he received top-secret clearance to maintain various Air Force computer networks, and he allegedly used that clearance to dump hundreds of classified documents into a social media chat room. He's been charged with two counts of espionage. So how ready really is the Pentagon, i.e. the United States Department of Defense, our military? How ready is it to both wield and defend against information as a weapon of war? Well, Patrick Tucker joins us. He's science and technology editor at Defense One. Patrick, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Megna. Also with us today is Jespreet Gill. She covers defense networks and emerging technologies for the online publication Breaking Defense. Jespreet, welcome to you. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so first of all, I want to start out with what's latest uh, or what we know uh, most recently about what Jack Teixeira is alleged to have done. I mean, Jespreet, I'm reading here that uh, it seems as if uh, there are social media, there are accounts or postings uh, from him that may have contained classified documents as early as February of last year? I mean, so how far back does this go? Yeah, exactly. It it goes back to last year, but most of the reporting has been focused on recently this year. What was um, unveiled was a couple of hundred pages of sensitive and classified documents, and those documents painted a picture of the Russia-Ukraine war, and it also included in part information on adversaries like China and its weapon tests and how U.S. intelligence keeps tabs on its allies. And it was leaked over Discord. Um, which is a social media app. It's voice, text, video, and uh, it's popular with the gaming community and allows users to create their own servers or join existing servers. So through that, uh, Jack 
uh, unveiled those mm. uh, documents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I'm seeing here that uh, Discord's chief legal officer uh, said a little bit earlier this month in a statement that uh, classified military documents pose a significant complex challenge for Discord and other platforms because there's, quote, no structured process for the government to communicate whether documents posted on social media are classified or even authentic. I mean, Patrick Tucker, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a huge problem. Uh, this is a result in in part of a a kind of massive dysfunction that exists in uh, uh, classification of information. One that uh, national security leaders have uh, acknowledged and 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 complained about vocally on Capitol Hill. The United States government classifies too much stuff. Uh, it doesn't have the most up-to-date means for uh, keeping or using classified information in a way that's like usable. There's an enormous backlog of people that need clearances to deal with the stuff administratively, but there's also a huge number of people that just have classified access and aren't using it actively. Uh, but mostly the, the Pentagon and really the national security community in general don't have any sort of like data-driven strategy for determining how long something should be classified or how long something can be classified. Wow. Okay. We're going to come back to that because a little bit later in the show, we're going to be hearing from um, someone who was actually charged with uh, helping make uh, military uh, data more secure for the United States. But but Jaspreet, let me, let me ask you, um, it seems quite uh, amazing to me that, well, and amazing to everyone, that someone like, allegedly like Jack Teixeira, could have been posting what you know what are classified documents to a gaming chat room essentially for a year and nobody noticed when at the same time and you've reported on this uh, the defense department itself last year identified um, the threat of internal leaks as a major security vulnerability uh, for the Pentagon can you tell us a little bit about that report yeah, sure. So um, DOD, at, and recently, just as last week, DOD told me that combating an insider threat that has legitimate authorization, like uh, Jack did, he held the top secret security clearance and the sensitive compartmental uh, access. It's one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, um, challenges that the department has when it comes to protecting information. Um, And now it's really moving ahead. The department is moving ahead on this security concept called zero trust. And that's exactly what the name implies. It, you know, assumes that all users and devices, whether it's inside or outside an organization's network, cannot be inherently trusted. So last year in November, uh, DOD released its zero trust strategy. And to go along with that, there was an implementation plan. And the strategy itself outlined this time frame of 2027 for what it called targeted zero trust, which is a set of these baseline zero trust capabilities that need to be implemented across the entire enterprise. And then those would be followed by a more advanced level of zero trust. So they're really trying to move ahead on the security concept. Okay, but just let me, I want to just emphasize to people that how clear the Pentagon's own internal assessment was, as you reported last year, because uh, I'm seeing a more recent statement to you from David McCune, the DOD's chief information security officer, because I believe it was April of it was this month that he told you that an insider threat 
with legitimate authorization and access to information remains one of the most, if not the most, difficult challenges in protecting information. Was the report from last year about the dangers of those insider threats as clearly worded as that? Um, I would say, you know, DOD recognizes that it has an insider threat, but I think that this particular case really highlighted the fact that they need to focus just as much as they do on the outside threat to the inside threat as well. Patrick Tucker, what would you say to that? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, the Defense Department has has recognized uh, the growing challenge of, of insider threat detection mitigation uh, really going going back for a very long time. And they have made incremental changes over the years. Um, so you see, for instance, uh, the uh, mandate on implementation of zero trust security architectures. You also see a move towards uh, continuous evaluation. That's now de- Defense Department wide. And that's just a change in the way the Defense Department evaluates people that have clearances. So going from, uh, for instance, you know, in awarding the clearance, talking to a bunch of people that the individual used to know, uh, figuring out whether or not they're trustworthy, and then going back and revisiting that trustworthy uh, designation on a, on a, every three to five years. Now what the Defense Department does is uh, remain open to kind of notifications about big changes like arrests. Uh, a divorce could be an indicator that someone is rising in uh, the potential to become an insider threat, a big life change. But even that wouldn't have caught uh, this particular case, uh, in large part because this this uh, kid, 21 years old, didn't have a lot of uh, you know credit card debt or, or anything that would have pinged continuous evaluation. So it, it's this ongoing struggle, and uh, there's a lot of uh, bureaucratic obstacles in place when you talk about a defense department trying to predict uh, potential insider threat behavior among a, a serving population that is incredibly large. And, and, and it's kind of a political hot-button uh, issue, too, because there are, uh, you know, social media postings that can be seen as indicative, perhaps, of, of insider threat behavior. Uh, and the Defense Department, as well as the entire national security community, has legal right to uh, look at those and, and use those as part of an evaluation of someone's potential. But there's no policy that says exactly how they can do that. And there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not that constitutes something like undue government surveillance over the serving population. I see. Now, uh, Jaspreet, in your reporting, um, uh, officials have told you that maybe this whole zero trust philosophy or security environment might have might have stopped to share, but uh, that you can't fully prevent someone from stealing information and getting it out of a secure military facility unless you remove their access entirely. That's the only guaranteed way to do it. Right. And, you know, implementing zero trust isn't a process that just happens overnight. It takes time. Um, And in this particular case, we saw he Jack began with transcribing the documents over Discord, and then he started physically taking the documents home. So when something like that happens, it could be something beyond zero trust, because the only way to stop something like that would be a physical uh, inspection of the documents if they're leaving the facility or not. Mm. So just for, for we lay folks out there, can you give us the simple like couple sentence definition of what this whole zero trust manage information management philosophy actually is? How would you describe specifically what it is, Jess Breed? 
Sure. So it's a security concept and, you know, the name really is what it is. <laughs> it seems that no users or devices on a network, whether it's inside or outside the network, um, cannot be inherently trusted. And it basically operates under the assumption that attackers have already breached an organization's network. And some of the main tenets of this concept includes things that we've already mentioned, like continuous monitoring of all network activity, uh, multi-factor authentication, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with if you have something like an online banking account, for example, mm -hmm. or use Twitter or Facebook. And it emphasizes least privilege access, which basically means that a user should only have access to what they need to perform their job functions. Yeah, so just yeah. read, hang on for just a second, because we have to take a quick break. Sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, but we are talking today about the Pentagon's internal readiness when it comes to the era of information warfare that we're all living in. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Patrick Tucker is with us today. He's science and technology editor at Defense One. And Jaspreet Gill joins us as well. She covers defense networks and emerging technologies for the online publication Breaking Defense. And Jaspreet, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you there before the break, but you were telling us um, the about the, the things that are or the tools or methodologies that are involved with uh, zero trust uh, information environments that the Pentagon is moving towards. I just wanted to give you a chance to finish your thought. Sure. Um, so one note I think that's important to make here is that not all zero trust models are the same, mm. meaning that broadly, while the end goal is the same to prevent, you know, potential threats and breaches, it really does come down to the individual organization's own policies, the size of the organization's network, the types of data that they're working with, and to what extent they employ things like monitoring the users. And this is completely different from the traditional approach. Okay. And Patrick, just quickly, so do you do you see the Pentagon is not having um, all of these uh, tools in place, but are they moving with enough uh, determination, do you think, towards getting um, a, sort of a true zero trust environment in place to hopefully prevent? I don't know if they would have, like we said, would, would they have prevented the share leaks? We don't know, but to pr possibly prevent future leaks. 
Uh, well, it's hard to say. Th- there's so much leaking in the case of Teixeira that uh, it- it's hard to say exactly how, like, when uh, it might have uh, caused an-, an intervention effect. Uh, if you talk to military leaders, they say that we're very serious about this and they want to move out as quickly as possible. There is a, a policy that guides them to do that. But, uh, you know, you also run into this problem where you have a lot of different networks. Uh, you have a lot of classified information. And so moving all of that into uh, a, a zero trust architecture means, uh, you know, doing a really pervasive sweep of, of all of that stuff and then figuring out how to to bring it all into a more modern uh, environment. And, and this speaks to kind of a big problem that, uh, yeah, the Defense Department is, is trying to move very quickly, but it's also an enormous bureaucracy. And, uh, you know, there's, there's also a lot of priorities that it has, like, the, you know, establishing zero trust architecture is uh, a priority as well as developing next generation hypersonics, as well as developing defensive mechanisms for next generation hypersonics, as well as supplying uh, weapons and aid to the uh, fighters in Ukraine. So uh, how well it can do all of these things at once, you know, it, this is a priority amongst many, many priorities. Mm, okay. So Patrick and Jespreet, hang on for a second. In a moment, we're going to hear from someone whose job it was specifically to uh, to prepare or defend uh, against these kinds of uh, information leaks. But before we hear from him, I want to just play quickly a thought from Nicole Perlroth, because she covered cybersecurity and digital espionage for The New York Times for years uh, and is the author of a book about how the NSA's most powerful cyber rep- weapons were leaked uh, to the world. And when she looks at the Teixeira case, she says the fact that a lot of those documents ended up on Discord tells her that the insider threat problem is not going away for the Pentagon. I, for one, was very surprised to see that, again, a low-level IT administrator would have this much access to this much intelligence, be bringing it home, be sharing it online you know, on this Discord channel with his buddies, and that it would take them this long to figure out what was happening. That is really a failure of security within the federal government. And I think, I hope that this is a yet another wake-up call that unless they figure this out, this is just going to keep happening and it's going to get worse and worse. So when Nicole Perlroth says, again, she was surprised to see that again this is happening, referring there back to the Edward Snowden leaks in 2013. So that brings us to Admiral Mike Rogers. He's former command, uh, commander of the U.S. Cyber Command and director of the NSA. He retired as a four-star Navy admiral and is currently senior advisor at the consulting firm, the Brunswick Group. Admiral Rogers, welcome to On Point. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. So first of all, give me your thoughts uh, about the the fact of uh, this the the Teixeira leaks and the fa- and that they've been apparently allegedly going on uh, for so long without uh, the Pentagon knowing about it. So I, I think it it clearly speaks to we're not where we need to be. There shouldn't be any doubt in anybody's mind that we have not the Department of Defense. And I'm just giving you an opinion. I'm not a member of the department anymore. Is not where it needs to be with respect to security. I mean, I lived this personally as I became the director of NSA in the aftermath of Snowden's theft of classified information. So you know, I've led an organization that was trying to address, hey, how we can deal with the insider threat within our segment, within NSA segment of the Department of Defense. It's interesting if you look at the trend in the last few years. Look at Snowden, Manning, this latest issue. Leakers have tended to be young and junior individuals of late, mm-hmm. which is a little different than the historic norm. 
And I, I'm the first event I'm trying to figure out. So what are the implications of that? Is that, is this just something unusual? Is this something more fundamental? But, but it clearly, I think highlights, we have granted a wide level of access to a whole lot of people and, and we have not applied technology as broadly as we need to, to ensure those individuals who have granted access to, in fact, have some measure of oversight or control in some ways, and we're not there yet. Okay, so with that in mind, though, let me, I'd like to to mine your expertise in the aftermath of the of the Snowden leaks in, in 2013. I mean, because in a sense, you know the old uh, cliche about the military always fighting the last war. I mean, what lessons were learned post-Snowden? Well, I, I think, that, again, the issue gets to be what controls do you put in place to ensure you have a level of awareness of what your authorized users are doing? Because in this case, he was an authorized user. He was an IT administrator who had been granted, uh, it appears, a fairly wide system of privileges because it, it appears he needed to use those privileges to actually execute oversight of this classified network. He used those privileges, though, to actually g- access content on the network and then either transcribe it initially, photograph it, or ultimately, you know, print it out and, and pull it. Um, we, I, the thing that I wonder about is, are we providing access too broadly, number one? And number two, are we failing to apply technology to really understand exactly what our authorized users are doing? Because one of the challenges with trusted, um, with a trust approach, for example, it probably wouldn't have have done anything in this case. It's largely designed to ensure that the individuals, for example, who are on your network structure are actually the authorized individuals, and it isn't someone who has assumed another identity. Mm -hmm. And that's not the scenario in this case. He was an authorized user who used his authorized access for an illegal purpose. Right. So uh, we'll talk more about um, what the the latest leaks tell us about needed areas of improvement. But Admiral, I'm wondering if you could, can you describe what measures were put into place uh, since uh, since Snowden? And you men- mentioned Chelsea Manning as well, and we'll throw in Reality Winner uh, 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 in addition. I mean, what measures have been have been put into place to, to prevent Well, again, I won't, I, I wasn't responsible for the DOD, the Department of Defense as a whole. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to go into many of the classified things we put in place at the National Security Agency to ensure it wasn't replicated. But in general, I would say you review, have you granted too much access? So you try to cull down the numbers. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what is the nature of the access you've granted? Is it too broad? Do you need to really clamp it down? And then lastly, what are the tools that you can put in place to ensure you have a level of awareness about activity on your network structure? From from simple questions like who is accessing what information, when, for how long, for what purpose, how are things like printers and uh, and other devices, for example, that you can a thumb drive that you can enter into the system, are you restricting the ability to remotely access your network structure? And we did all of those things, you know, within the National Security Agency in the aftermath of uh, Mr. Snowden. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, I, I mentioned the fighting the last war cliche because I'm still taken by the fact that um, these 
documents appeared on Discord, and, and it had been floating around for quite some time before, um, well, long before Teixeira was arrested. And the fact that Discord itself, and I'll just quote again their chief legal officer, saying that there's no structured process for the government as a whole to communicate whether documents posted on social media are classified or authentic. Now, the reason why I point that out, Admiral, is because, as people might remember, uh, the information uh, leaked by Edward Snowden, he didn't post it just willy-nilly on social media. This was back in 2013. He actually went through The Guardian and The New York Times and and others, uh, and it was the information was reported. But we're living in a very different era now, right? Teixeira is just alleged to have dumped this stuff publicly, and it went kind of around the world. Do you think um, our military establishment and military leadership um, is really uh, has really come to terms with what the current sort of uh, state of technology and the facility with which people use it? And uh, have they really come to terms with that? So I think there's a challenge here for both the commercial sector as well as the government. If you're the commercial sector, you know, you're trying to, I think what you're saying is, so look, I, I am not an expert. This is from a commercial perspective. I'm not an expert on classified material, what it looks like, how how you guys annotate it to try to protect it. You're asking me potentially to try to identify something I'm not familiar with. On the government side, I think it's, hey, the government doesn't really have, I would argue broadly, a high level of knowledge of the current trends of information and situational awareness for some of our younger, some of the younger employees. You know, you don't find leaders in DOD on, in gaming chat rooms. And yet a large segment of the workforce does. They view it as completely normal, that they feel very connected doing that. They, they feel, hey, it's something they want to integrate into their everyday life. So I, I think we do have a disconnect on the government side with a level of awareness about just what information paths are our employees using. And given those paths, do we have the right linkages to make sure we have some level between the commercial sector and the government, that there's some level of situational awareness about just what kind of information is moving out in that world. Mm. And we're, we are clearly not there right now. And if I could, one last point on this, there's a flip side to this. And I can remember this very much in the aftermath of Snowden, when a lot of the workforce would say to us, so why are you clamping down on us because of the actions of one individual? Or, hey, why are you restricting my ability? Why are you monitoring me more? I didn't do anything wrong. So there's, a, there's another side to this as well. So there's no easy answer here. Okay. Yeah. So so point point taken on that, but is isn't one of the answers why? I mean, we frequently hear this with national security, right? I mean, is that not acceptable for uh, you know for senior leadership at the Pentagon to to tell to uh, to lower level um, uh, service members that well we do have to restrict access because clearly it's happened too many times already. Well, remember, I, first comment I make is classified access is not just a uniformed. We, we provide classified access to the civilian workforce, to the military right. workforce. Um, the second point I would make is, now that's the argument, you know, as a leader I always made. I said, look, we are entrusted with very sensitive information. And because of that trust, we are going to be held accountable to a higher standard. The, the challenge got to be, so if you're a... Some members of the workforce, so let me understand this. You now are telling me 
you want to monitor me outside of work. Are you telling me that what I post, the opinions that I place on social media, now those become a topic of government surveillance? Uh, like I said, this is not black and white. I wish I wish it was. Um, and I think it's also interesting. I wonder if one of the implications of, as you're trying to figure out what a security approach should look like in the 21st century, there is just a lot less trust in organizations mm-hmm. in general. And you see that in some ways, I think, even within the national security establishment itself. It's one of the reasons why I think leakers of late have tended to be a bit younger. I just think they're, they in some ways feel less of an allegiance to the organization and much more to, to a broader viewpoint in their mind anyway. So this is a very interesting and important point, Admiral, because fundamentally what you're saying, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, is that there may be no technological fix when really what we have to be looking at are the motivations of individuals. Now, we don't know what Teixeira's motivation was, but, I mean, if that's the case and we're talking about a generation of potential servicemen and women who may not have uh, as unquestioning allegiance to the very military that they've signed up to serve— I mean, that kind of, how, how do you deal with that? So I think it shows you, number one, there is no single solution to this challenge. Number two, I think it also highlights, and again, remember, this is both our civilian segment as well as our military segment. We need to think about people with classified access writ large. Um, I think it also highlights that as we're trying to figure out solutions, there is going to be a technical dimension to this there is going to be a human dimension. I thought the most realistic goal when I was in, and I can remember having this discussion with the president one time, um, where I said, look, I think the most realistic approach is we want to make sure that people cannot systematically remove material for extended periods of time and with extensive amounts. That, hey, if the goal is to make sure no individual with a classified uh, access can ever remove any material, I said, that is a very unrealistic expectation in my experience. Hmm. So what we ought to focus on, I think, is how do we look, how do we try to make sure it's not over an extended extended duration, that it doesn't make up an extended amount of information? And then what are the clues that we can identify that potentially start to help us identify who might be more inclined to go down this road? Uh, Admiral, we only have you for one more minute. And the last question I want to ask you, actually, I have tons more questions, but we have one more (laughs) minute with you, is what does this tell you about, uh, again, focusing on the United States military, about its vulnerabilities to external attacks? Is there any relationship here or any insight? Well, look, um, espionage services do have a human dimension in them. They do try to access people they know who have access to classified information and then see if they can make them vulnerable and, in fact, ultimately support and provide information. If you go back to the Cold War, that tended to be the, the norm for espionage or for the loss of control of classified information. It tended to be very historic espionage. We've seen less of that. The, the good news is the ability to externally penetrate DOD classified networks. We haven't seen large information being dumped publicly from that. Now, I always used to worry 
Remember, just because you're not seeing something in media doesn't mean that someone hasn't been able to steal something. They're just not making it public, mm. which is, again, goes back, as you highlighted in your intro, the kind of Cold War microdot scenario, except now we're doing it via computer networks yeah. and remote access. Well, Admiral Mike Rogers, former commander of the U.S. Cyber Command and director of the NSA, currently a senior advisor with the Brunswick Group. Admiral Rogers, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Megna. Have a great day. Patrick Tucker and Jespreet Gill will love to hear what you thought of what Admiral Rogers said. And we'll do that right when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And just a heads up on something we're working on for a bit later this week. It could impact more than 160 million Americans. We're talking about the Affordable Care Act and the fact that after the ACA passed, you do not have to pay for preventative care, screening for things like cancer, diabetes, for HIV prevention drugs, or screening for STDs. You didn't have to pay for it after the ACA. However, recently, a Texas federal judge struck down the no-cost preventative care portion of the ACA. And the case continues to work its way through the courts, but it could have, as I said, an impact on 160 million Americans. So we want to hear from you. Have you used the no-cost preventative care screenings uh, with your health care provider? If, if you're a doctor uh, or a nurse or a health care worker of any kind, what difference has it made to your patients after the fact, uh, after the ACA said, nope, people do not have to pay for important screenings? What impact would it have if they suddenly had to start paying for them now? Give us a call at 617 353 0683. That's 617-353-0683. You can also contact us via the On Point Vox Pop app. If it's not already on your phone, just look for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps and you can send us a high quality message that way. So talking about preventative screening, preventative care uh, a little later in this week. So today, though, we are talking about what the latest leaks out of the Pentagon, uh, allegedly by a 21-year-old Massachusetts National Guardsman, says about the Pentagon's readiness for the age of information warfare. And I'm joined by Jaspreet Gill. She's with Breaking Defense and Patrick Tucker, who's with Defense One. Uh, and Jaspreet, first of all, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers said a lot. I was just wondering what you thought about uh, the fact that he was questioning, you know, the very um, number of people who have access uh, to to classified documents. Is the number too high? What's the nature of the access? Um, is it too broad? That these are um, these are serious questions that the Pentagon needs to take up once again. Your your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so I, I think you brought up a good point that, you know, this isn't just black and white. Um, it's kind of unclear as to what exactly could have changed with this. But I think that the Pentagon does recognize that this was a failure on their part. And to that point, they did launch a 45-day review immediately after the leak. And part of that review focuses on, uh, you know, who has access to the sensitive information across the department. And um, just yesterday, the Pentagon's chief information officer also issued a new directive that it gives military services a month to certify that their systems also comply with DOD's network. So I certainly don't want to speak for DOD, but um, it it remains to be seen what comes out of these reviews and, you know, if anything changes when it comes to who has access, how many people have access. Mm. Because as we know, as we've mentioned several times today, Jack did have the proper authentication to be on the network, but it remains unclear if the specific information that he was accessing and what he was printing, if he should have been accessing that. Got it. Okay. Well, Patrick Tucker, just this weekend on Sunday, Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, who also happens to be the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, he was on ABC News and he he said that once we get to the highest level of classification, Senator Warner says we may be having too many folks uh, taking a look at them. He says over four million people with clearances. Yeah, at the same time, there aren't enough people with clearances. It's, uh-huh. it's, it's this very bizarre uh, friction point. There's an enormous backlog of uh, people that need to get their clearances in order to basically help administrate this stuff. You're talking about uh, people that serve those guys with, with four stars, and they're very necessary. There's an enormous backlog of clearances for them, but you also have a, a enormous cleared population. A lot of them are retirees. A lot of them are, are older, and they don't necessarily do much with that. So what is that friction kind kind of like speak to. Um, I, I think that it's it speaks to something that, uh, you know, folks like, for instance, uh, former vice chairman, chief of staff, uh, John Hyten have testified to. Uh, ODNI director, office of director of national intelligence, director Avril Haines have testified to. And that is that we have way too many classified things. And once you classify something at that level, and you're classifying basically everything in it, that includes the stuff that's incredibly uh, kind of dangerous in public light, like sources and methods. Uh, but it also includes stuff like analysis product. So one of the things that uh, I'm told by uh, people that I talk to in the department that that uh, is is surfacing in discussion about this stuff is how do you maybe separate out the analysis product that has to be very widely shared in order for it to be useful from some of those elements that go into the product that maybe a commander might have an interest in but aren't uh, necessarily as as uh, need to be part of that same package because one of the things that uh, you know speaking to information warfare and whether we're doing it right mm. there is also a, a unanimity of opinion that we have to be able to share information much faster, both with, uh, you know, drones, uh, with with platforms like jets or something in an information environment, but also with allies and partners. And this is something that DOD leaders and, and intelligence leaders have said is really, really critical. So you have to, on the one hand, make use of this information before it's obsolete. And that means bringing more people into the fold, but also keeping some elements of that uh, separate. And we just don't have like a good strategy for doing that. So on that point, Patrick, you mentioned Avril Haines, who's the current director of national intelligence. And uh, just this week, I believe she's at the, she was at the Carnegie Endowment and she, she talked about the latest leaks and called them depressing, deeply depressing and very frustrating. But then she went on to say, quote, what I think we all try to do is learn the right lessons and then not over torque. 
as a consequence. And she said what she means by that is trying to promote better practices while at the same time not undermining our capacity to do appropriate sharing and to engage in our mission. So that's what we, what you were referring to about the need for high-speed sharing of information. Right, exactly. We had a situation before 9-11 where uh, the most important problem uh, about what to do with classified information was that it was far too siloed. And then you didn't have agencies that were even communicating constructively about emerging threats. So uh, there's, I think there's a lot of people that are very sensitive to the possibility that we might go on to uh, recreate that, that very flawed paradigm as part of like an overcorrection. But uh, as, as Admiral Rogers said, there has to be some way to employ and, and, and people have talked about this. Uh, uh, this is something that folks in counterintelligence are very uh, preoccupied with trying to do. Employing technology to, for instance, create access on a temporary basis in a way that can be observed. This is how you use modern cloud technologies more effectively. Uh, you know, but, but also using things that are uh, part of public social media, things that have been publicly posted to, for instance, detect when there might be classified objects in the wild far sooner. And the while the, the Pentagon feels like they have legal authority to do that, what they're lacking is a policy that tells them exactly how. Mm. And, and I, I think that Rogers pointed out to the enormous political sensitivities about that. Uh, when you're talking about potentially using someone's social media posts and uh, to, to discipline them in some way. And, and folks in insider threat detection and counterintelligence are, are really attuned to that. And the, the, the solution that they want to get to is one where uh, something might pops up and it might be the cause for a, an intervention, a conversation between a superior and subordinate. So you can imagine a conversation between Jack uh, Teixeira's superior and him at the very earliest stages of this when he was just beginning to like transcribe something. You know, that would have been a completely different outcome for him him and for the country, then uh, him kind of continuing this process and getting to the point where because it was never detected, all of a sudden things were exploding on 4chan and, and all over the place because, uh, you know, no intervention happened early enough. Yeah. Okay. So here's something I want to explore with, with both of you, because I've heard both of you and also Admiral Rogers say that, of course, this isn't just black and white, right? There's no like one silver bullet. There will always be some uh, security vulnerabilities. We can never have, uh, you know, a completely ironclad clad solution. And also, you know, we don't want to be China in terms of surveilling everyone um, all the time. Points well taken. But, you know, as I step back, it looks to me like the Pentagon, in a way, is dealing, this is the Pentagon's version of what we're all dealing with right now. And that is the the rapid development uh, the pace, the rapid pace of the development of technology, right? We haven't even talked about what AI might might bring into all of this uh, and the consequences of that rapid development. And, you know, in our normal civilian lives, we're just trying to figure out, like, how do we keep up with happen what's happening on social media? How do we keep up with how technology is changing our jobs? We don't have a strategy as civilians. And Patrick and Jespreet, it's, I mean, you've both said the Pentagon doesn't have a strategy to also deal with this in the military context. So, I mean, is this just a fact of life now that we are going to play forever catch up with um, the vulnerabilities that technology continues to open up ahead of us? I mean, Jaspreet, what do you think about that? Yeah, so, you know, I think the future of 
information warfare is constantly evolving. And for DOD, as you just mentioned, um, I see the trends really leaning towards things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, automation, especially when it comes to data and how these advanced technologies can help with things like analyzing data and, you know, developing these really targeted information operations or detecting potential attacks. So it's going to be a fine balance of, you know, how does DOD make sure that this concept they're moving towards, zero trust, is implemented in a way that protects data and at the same time aligns with the advancements, the rapid advancements um, in technology. Okay. So Patrick, before I hear from you on this, uh, since Jaspreet did mention some tools that uh, could be implemented, we heard from Nicole Perlroth a little bit earlier. And just to remind folks, she used to cover cybersecurity and digital espionage espionage for The New York Times. Uh, and she says that uh, she finds it frustrating uh, to see quotes in the news right now in which folks say that the insider threat problem is impossible to solve because... She believes there are technologies available on the market today that could go a long way to solving uh, the problem. And full disclosure, she works for uh, or she's an advisor, I should say, to a company, one company that's developed such a product. They found out how to map where data is inside an organization, no matter what application or file or email it's sitting in. And then they show IT administrators or usually the chief information security officer, here's the data and here's who has access to it. And more importantly, here's what they can do with it. You know, can they screenshot it? Can they share it? Can they download it? Can they print it out? And it gives IT administrators a level of control over what employees can do with that data that we really haven't seen yet at that level. So Patrick Tucker, Nicole Perlroth there describing some tools, some critical tools in what would be a 21st or even 22nd century toolkit uh, to, to manage the insider threat. But what good are those tools if, as you keep saying, there's no overall strategy, if, if there's, it's not clear what needs to be built to manage that insider threat? Right, right. And I, I also think that it's uh, uh, sort of ironic that uh, Jack Tuckter worked in IT administration. So, like, there's always at some point, like, a, a human link that is is perhaps vulnerable. But what uh, we're talking about in terms of a next generation approach to information security is... Uh, it sounds like zero trust, but really it's just using cloud technologies in the way that Fortune 500 companies do as opposed to the way the Defense Department does now. So if you have a Fortune 500 company, you can create little spaces where two individuals can share information for a specific period of time, and they're known entities like their behavior is being monitored at a hypervisor level. It sounds very technical, but basically you know exactly when one point of information is, is moving to someone else, and there's an expiration date around that. But that's really kind of as, as a guiding philosophy, the thing that is very much missing from the way our government, and a lot of governments, but our government, uh, approaches the idea of information security. Um, I, I talked to a researcher, his name is David Grimes, he's, he's actually a cancer researcher, but he, he works in big data, and he wrote this fantastic 2016 paper that illustrated that a secret kept between two people has a certain expiration date, and when you begin to involve more and more people in the process of keeping that secret, the more nodes you involve, the faster your expiration date. So there's actually a point at which you can, in theory, predict when a piece of high-level classified information will reach the public or will 
reach a point of unauthorized disclosure, as they say. And this is part of the reason why unauthorized disclosure actually happens all the time, far more than we read about. But uh, figuring out how to move a piece of classified information into the unclassified realm uh, while keeping the most important bits separate and secret, this is just not something that the Defense Department uh, or really our, our government has any uh, intention of doing right now. And that's why you see this incredibly, I dare say, awkward and fumbled approach to to uh, dealing with things when they come out. I think mm. another example is is the remember the, the Chinese weather balloon that uh, yeah. kind of surprised everybody uh, a little while ago. The, so, you know, a lot of folks in the, in the D.C. press heard uh, first began to notice that something was up when the head of NORAD skipped a, a lunch briefing with reporters. And it wasn't long after that that the Pentagon was canceling briefings. And then you have this weird moment where uh, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, very nice guy, Pentagon spokesperson, has a press briefing where someone asks him, can you tell us where the balloon is right now. And his response, because they were just sort of caught off guard by this, is no, but, you know, if you look up, you might be able to see it. So, like, he's basically trying to say that information that's in the public domain should be classified. And it's exactly that approach that um, is, is, is counterintuitive and, 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 and poorly serves, uh, I, I feel like, everyone's uh, intentions of using information correctly and wisely. Yeah. We've got one minute left. There's one more question I want to sneak in here because Admiral Rogers also said something which I think is vitally important. And I'm not using what Admiral Rogers said to like draw a broad brush across all servicemen and women in, in the United States uh, Armed Forces, certainly. But he did say that he wonders if there's a, uh, you know, amongst younger uh, members uh, of our armed forces, that if there are some people who just normative behaviors are different, that it's just normal to like share stuff uh, uh, that's classified uh, uh, on uh public servers or that maybe their their sense of uh, allegiance to the institution, their trust in the institution of the military is less than it was before. So maybe ultimately this isn't necessarily a technological problem, but a human one. And Patrick, we've got like 15 seconds. I just want to, what do you quickly, can the Pentagon do anything about that? Yeah, I, I think they can look at uh, uh, social media, stuff that's posted on social media in a way that's respectful of the personnel. And then they can deal with the technological problem to a, a kind of an old human problem. I think it predates this kid. Well, Patrick Tucker, science and technology editor at Defense One, thank you so much for joining us again today. Hey, thank you for having me. And Jaspreet Gill, who covers defense networks and emerging technologies for the online publication Breaking Defense. Jaspreet, it was great to have you and thank you for your reporting. Thank you. And by the way, we have links to both Patrick and Jaspreet's reporting at our website, onpointradio.org. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>